people have these fears like, what if I'm a pedophile? What if I want to hurt my family? And if you don't realize that that's OCD, you think that you're just a terrible person. Welcome to another episode of FemPower Health, your go-to podcast for all things related to women's health and empowerment. This is Georgie, your host. In today's episode, we discuss obsessive compulsive disorder and have a special guest joining us, Kate Goldhouse. She is a psychotherapist who specializes in OCD and anxiety, and she will be sharing her expertise and insights on obsessive compulsive disorder, and she'll be shedding light on the various aspects of this often misunderstood condition. And definitely check out the show notes for more information about Kate and all of her expertise. So during our conversation, we'll delve into the goals of the different therapies of OCD with a focus on exposure and response prevention, otherwise known as ERP, and inference-based cognitive behavioral therapy, otherwise known as ICBT. We explore how ERP aims to help individuals tolerate discomfort and uncertainty, while ICBT focuses on differentiating between what is imaginary and what is real. Kate provides compelling examples to illustrate these concepts, emphasizing the importance of living a meaningful life despite anxiety and fear. Join us as we gain valuable insights from Kate Goldhouse and work towards destigmatizing OCD and promoting mental health for all. So grab your headphones and let's dive into this enlightening episode on FemPower Health. Let's get right to it. So why don't you start by giving your um, introduction and then we can dive in and talk about some of the misperceptions and the things you wish people would know about it. So I'm Catherine Goldhouse. I go by Kate. And I'm a psychotherapist in private practice in, I see everyone virtually, in Maine, Massachusetts, Florida, and soon to be California. And I specialize in OCD and anxiety. So in terms of OCD, you know, people use OCD as this adjective, like, oh, I'm so OCD about this. And it's incredibly problematic because OCD isn't about that. OCD is considered one of the top 10. The World Health Organization says OCD is one of the top 10 most debilitating disorders. So it's no joke, right? And if you like to color code things or you like things neat in your house or, you know, that's not OCD and, and making comments like that, even though they're not meant to be cruel, do end up um, are problematic for two reasons. One, it kind of makes light of something that's really serious. But secondly, is it people who do have OCD then don't recognize it in themselves. And the symptoms that they do experience, for example, fears about being a pedophile, fears that they might hurt their family, fears that they've offended God, fears that they could lose control, fears that they're not with the right person, you know, those don't get talked about in the media and kind of in our common vernacular. And so when people experience those symptoms, they don't think OCD, they think there's something terribly wrong with me. And so it takes a really long time for people to even seek help, because there's, they don't recognize OCD in themselves. And then you know, to, to be an OCD specialist, you, you really are 
a specialist, you have to do additional training. And so oftentimes people who specialize in OCD, like it's sort of all the, all they do. Whereas if you search for a therapist and they specialize in anxiety and depression and substance abuse and all these things, you sort of know, okay, this person hasn't probably hasn't been trained. And so what happens is people end up going to therapists who don't know about OCD and they hear things like, oh my God, this person thinks that they're a pedophile. Like this is really alarming and totally misdirects them. Or, you know, there will be, there's something called postpartum OCD where new moms will have fears that they're going to hurt the baby. And it's more common than, I mean, we're we're starting to hear more and more about postpartum depression, but postpartum OCD Mm -hmm. is never talked about, but it is a real thing. And so, you know, most pediatricians aren't trained in OCD. And so a mom may go to her child's pediatrician and say, oh my God, I'm having these thoughts. And too many times that pediatrician will report her and it's just awful so it's that's why I feel so passionate about people being really clear on what OCD is and isn't. How important is it to get clear on the definition? Because I, I feel like sometimes these mental health conditions are on a spectrum. Like I know already they talk about autism spectrum and things like that. Tell me more about the importance of the label. It doesn't matter. You know, I mean, I would think for OCD, especially you have to go to the experts. So I think from that perspective, but even the nuances of how the symptoms manifest, especially because one may have, for lack of a better word at the moment, comorbid mental health conditions. Um, so can you, I guess, lay that out because it can be confusing. So someone may come into this episode, I want to learn about OCD. Someone may come in and just have general questions and be like, oh my gosh, now all this makes sense to me. Um, and that's usually who I like to talk to is the people who are struggling to find the answers. So can we dissect that a bit, that definition? And yeah, it really depends who you ask. Um, I'll give you my opinion, but in general, there are sort of two schools of thought in terms of treating OCD. Um, and in the United States, it's predominantly exposure and response prevention, which is you expose Mm -hmm. somebody to the fear and you prevent them from doing their normal compulsions. Um, So this has been pretty well researched and um, it's a lot of clinicians will like use this term. It's the gold standard. The problem is that while it is effective, it's only effective for you know, depending on the study, 50 to 60% of people, that leaves a whole lot of people suffering. And there are also people who are like, I'm never, ever going to do an exposure that is too scary for me. And so that doesn't include all these people who aren't even seeking help. So there's this other type of therapy, which comes out of Canada, and I'm reluctant to call it a new therapy, because it's not, it was developed in the 90s. But for sort of political reasons, it's not as well-known in the U.S. So while the goal with ERP is to help people learn to tolerate uncertainty and tolerate discomfort, 
the type of treatment that that I've become an expert in is inference-based cognitive behavioral therapy. And the goal with ICBT is to help people learn to differentiate what's coming from their imagination and what's real. So it's a cognitive therapy rather than a behavioral one. So it's much gentler and you know, it's, it's someone who refuses to do exposures is going to find this much more approachable. Research has shown that it is very effective. It is an evidence-based therapy. So I lay all that out because if you're someone who kind of is in the ERP camp, um, and again, you don't have to be in either, or ideally we use all of these tools and depending on the person, pick which one is going to be most beneficial. But if you sort of subscribe to the, the ERP model, you view anxiety and OCD as kind of the same, right? So the goal regardless is to help people learn to tolerate discomfort and tolerate uncertainty. And so in that case, the differentiating between generalized anxiety disorder and OCD isn't that important because it's sort of, and phobias as well it's sort of all treated under one umbrella. If you fall more into the inference-based therapy camp, those, the definition is very important because we're helping people learn to differentiate. Is this imaginary or is this real? And people with anxiety are anxious about things that are real, right? They're too anxious. It's exaggerated. Um, it's become debilitating, but it's real. Whereas with OCD, okay. there is this element of making it up. There, it doesn't exist, right? Um, and people will will kind of fall into this. Well, it's possible, and that for them is that's what will kind of spin them. Whereas with anxiety, it's you know, oh my God, I'm going to have to go to this party and all these people are going to be there and I hate crowds. And so maybe that person is too anxious about it, but they're anxious about something that's real, right? There is going to be a crowd. There are going to be a lot of people. Whereas if someone were to say, oh my God, I'm afraid to go to this party because there could be a murderer there. And I don't know if I could get killed. And I would be stepping into a dangerous situation. And you, you'll say like, okay, well, what's the evidence for that? And they'll say, well, it's possible. Or I heard about something on the news. Or my friend told me. Or I read this article. You know, And that's not evidence, right? We never like use that mm-hmm. in a court of law that you read an article or it's possible. That's not valid. But so that's kind of the difference. It's, is it made up? Or And in which case, we're helping people find that dividing line. And if it's not made up, it's, okay, how can we help you learn to deal with anticipatory anxiety? How can we help you put things in perspective? Whereas with OCD, again, if you, if you use I, IBT or ICBT, you, the thinking is you don't want to help someone um, learn to tolerate that maybe they could be a violent person, right? Because in ICBT, we would say, why would we help somebody do that when we know they're not violent? But in ERP, the thinking is, 
well, you can't be sure about anything. And so we have to help people learn to tolerate uncertainty. And ICBT says, no, 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 wait a minute. Like, okay, on one level, sure, we we can't be 100% certain of anything. Like, do I know the sun is coming up tomorrow? I mean, I guess not, but I don't live my life tolerating the possibility that it might not, right? I assume it will. I, I insist on certainty rather than tolerating uncertainty. And so with ICBT, we help people learn to have certainty when they can have certainty. Short story long, to, to answer your question, it really depends on, in terms of diagnosis, it depends which treatment you think is going to be most beneficial. But I think that if you're a therapist and you've become an expert in doing this, this therapy that like does require people to endure some degree of distress, I mean, it's sort of the point, right, is helping people learn to sit with discomfort. I think the idea then of this new therapy coming along that doesn't require that, I think it, ins- it kind of a lot of shame bubbles up. And there are a lot of therapists who who had OCD who got better with ERP. And, you know, ERP has saved people's lives. I don't in any way mean to diminish that. But I think, you know, you have to scratch your head. Like, why would why would anybody be dismissive of a new effective treatment? Right. Like, isn't that shouldn't Mm -hmm. we all be celebrating this? Like, isn't this great news? Now we have more options. And I think the reason that there are people in this country who are very um, reluctant to accept it as a viable option, I think I think it probably comes from that sense of, oh, my God, I had to endure this to get better. So if if there is another option, maybe that means my suffering was meaningless. Right. Or I had to put other people through this so they to get them better. Did I really have to do that? I feel terribly guilty. And then I think a big reason is we have a ton of experts in ERP in this country, and I think they like their position of authority. And so here comes this other therapy where a lot of a lot of people, you know, 30 somethings like myself have gotten really excited about it. And we're at the point now where we know more about this therapy than a lot of these more established clinicians, you know, a lot of white men and who, who have been in the field a long time. And I think, I think it's uncomfortable that, that a newer generation may know, be more expert at something than they are. And so I think there's a lot of, I think it feels threatening. What, what I would say is I think we need to acknowledge that this is such a challenging world. And I know we all want the facts, like there someone may want a clinical trial to say, you know, which of these therapies works better. But then you have clinicians like yourself who are doing this and see within your own practice, the evidence. And I see so much of that in the interviews that I do. And I'm not saying right or wrong, because I know there are some people who go on social media, love to poo poo (laughs) and go crazy on their posts around how certain things aren't credible. And it's not for me to say what is or isn't, but I do see this dynamic in healthcare of, of, that challenge with transition for a lot of different reasons, especially with that clinical trial mindset, which is 100% valid. I'm not saying it's not, 
but um, but I completely hear you. It's it's hard. It's not a black and white kind of thing, especially mental health. Like you can't take a blood test. Well, what's interesting is that there are a ton of clinical trials behind ICBT. Like this isn't just a proven um, effective therapy because it's worked well in my practice. I mean, this has been studied right. since the nineties, and there is there are so many studies behind this. And are there as many studies as ERP? I mean, no, it hasn't been around as long as ERP. So of course not. Right. But there are a ton of, of, of research, a ton of research behind this, a ton of studies, you know, whereas other things that kind of, there are sort of treatments like deep brain stimulation or TMS, which has research behind it, but not a ton. Right. This has much more research. And so there's no reason why this shouldn't be fully embraced by other OCD clinicians. I've read data that it takes 17 years for something to go from research to being part of the official guidelines of how you care for a specific condition. So I guess to that point then, and the question I wanted to ask you is, how does someone find that expert. Because one of the things I've also found fascinating is as I'm inter- interviewing these subspecialists who are so focused on these areas, there are all these great resources. Like for example, for those struggling with the symptoms of menopause, which can often be quite a struggle, um, they can go to the National American Menopause Society. And there's a list of all the experts that are certified. And so I even had lunch, dinner with friends last night who are so frustrated by their care. And I'm like, can you please go to this website and see if your OBGYN is certified? If not, find a new OBGYN. What about for this case? Are there ICBT rosters? Are mm-hmm. there OCD expert rosters that people can look at? What might those be? There are many, many, many more ERP specialists than ICBT specialists. And most okay. ICBT spe- specialists are also ERP specialists because we came into the field okay. learning that first. And just in the past couple of years, people have here in the States have learned about ICBT. So um, in terms of specifically finding an ICBT therapist, um, there's a website, icbt.online, where you can find a ton of resources Um, And there's also a list of clinicians in different states. You know, the major organization in the states is the IOCDF, the International OCD Foundation. There is a lot of great, a lot of great information on there. It is very pro ERP and there's little to nothing on there about ICBT. So when I was listening to you, you know, it has been so great that more and more people are being open about postpartum depression. I'm sure there were people before Brooke Shields, but I so remember Brooke Shields coming out about it and writing a book and more and more people discuss it. Thank goodness now, generally speaking, mental health is something we discuss and it is a shame how many are struggling even more so since since COVID. And again, I don't know if it it matters, the definition. So I always like to cover the, the nuance, but I was in, I was it was interesting to me that you were saying postpartum OCD and postpartum depression, because one of the examples you gave, I actually went through and my friends and I have talked about it. Some others have too. And we all, we all just labeled it the umbrella postpartum depression. Mm. So like my, my situation. So my son was born exactly seven days early. I had trouble nursing him. Like he would sleep very soundly 
I um, was very insistent on nursing him. And so we had to go that whole route of me pumping to put milk in a little syringe and we would pump the milk into his mouth, put an ice pack on his back so that he would wake up and know it's time to nurse. And then I'd put him to my breast and then he would start nursing. And then after he was done, I'd pump a little bit more for the next round. And then two hours later, rinse, repeat. And this was the first couple days of his life. And I was starting to have delusions. And so the delusion I kept having, and I would explain it to people like it was this fantasy slash fear all at the exact same time of me holding him and walking through the doorway and his head hitting the frame of the door. And luckily for me, um, I was at high risk of postpartum depression and all the doctors, they were such a, it was a proactive place. They had midwives, doulas. It was a very wonderful community and they had the checklist. Every time I went to the doctor, they asked when we, I went home, they asked, they spoke to my then husband and they created this safe space for me to talk about it. And so they put me on mandatory sleep in between nursing. Like I was not allowed to do dishes. I was not allowed to like go read a magazine or go clean something. They're like, you're on mandatory sleep duty. And so I would nurse, go to sleep, nurse, go to sleep. And it saved me. So I, I it was really scary because I'm like, I love my kid. What is going on here? This is the most effed up thing in the world. Um, but after those couple of days, it did subside, thank goodness. Um, so that's my story. But, you know, I'd love to like talk more about this because we need the awareness. Um, I know there's so many tragedies happening because this is not understood. Um, yeah. So please, I, I'm not an expert in this space, so I'd love to just get your perspective. Yeah. So one thing I should mention in terms of OCD onset is there's been a lot of research that has found that people with OCD kind of, kind of have um, a tenuous sense of self and don't feel super grounded in themselves. And this shows up and it makes sense given when OCD is most likely to show up. It's about around age 12 and age 19, right? And then after that, it's with, you know, after becoming a new parent, and then it can show up too when getting into a new relationship. So if you think about 19 is the most common. So if you think about what's going on during that period of life, I mean, that is a huge transition. You're going from living at home you know, everything is provided for you. You're, you have this very regimented schedule at school. Everything sort of feels safe. And, and there's a lot of, the world is sort of prepared for you. And then you go off to college and, or you leave home and it's, you know, it's a huge adjustment. There's so much change going on. And so a lot of self-doubt can start to trickle in. So in terms of becoming a new mom, you know, that's a huge, you know, OCD or not, you're going to have doubts about like, am I a good mom? Am I doing this right? And most people, you know, people without OCD will be able to have an image like the one that you talked about and will be able to say like, that was weird. Okay, moving on. Right. And it might come back and they'll be like, this is so strange moving on. 
But someone with OCD, because of that tenuous sense of self, because of that self-doubt, they'll get an image like that. And instead of being like, humans are funny, you know, we just think strange things, they will make meaning of it. And they will infer this means I must want to do this deep down. Or deep down, this means I want this to happen to my baby. Or deep down, this must mean um, I'm a dangerous person. And so you'll see compulsions that follow like, and something that a lot of people don't realize is avoidance is a compulsion. A compulsion is anything you do to try to kind of alleviate alleviate the doubt, alleviate the fear, alleviate the discomfort. And so you'll see new moms saying to their, their partners, don't leave me alone with the baby. I'm afraid I could lose control. Or, you know, you shouldn't leave me alone with the baby because I'm clearly not a good mom. Or, you know, whereas someone without OCD would be like, I just had this thought that means nothing. There's nothing to infer here someone with OCD will say, make meaning of it. Okay. That's when you kind of get into this risk of like, I have, I have these images of like sexually abusing my infant help. This is terrible. You know, if you get a therapist who has no idea about OCD may make so much meaning of that and really do a ton of damage, you know, report you to, child services and whatnot. Um, but someone who knows about OCD will be like, yeah, yeah, okay. I've heard, you know, we've just heard it all before and we're, we're not going to flinch. Um, so I think being able to kind of suss out, okay, does, does this person, great, they're an expert in postpartum depression. Do they know about postpartum OCD is so important. Okay. Would you see that, because um, you mentioned like 12, 19, and, you know, life changes like, you know, being a parent are key milestones. Would you assume that in most cases, people are probably going to exhibit symptoms well in advance um, of like delivering the baby? Like it probably wouldn't be like the first instance of having that fear and thinking now they shouldn't have the baby near them. Um, not necessarily. Sometimes it can be this thought that comes on and then all this meaning is, is made of it. You know, there are people who didn't mm-hmm. really have, hadn't experienced OCD at all until they turned 19 or until they became a new parent. It's called late onset, you know, late onset OCD is, is definitely a thing. What about menopause? Mm-hmm. Do you find that that, cause it's funny, like, I, I feel like I was in a double whammy. I, I'm now, now that I'm understanding perimenopause and menopause, thanks to all these fabulous experts, I'm like, I think I was perimenopausal and a new mom. Mm. I think it was like the hormone, excuse my language, shit show, like double time. Right. <laughs> yeah. And, but unfortunately, a lot of the research has been, that's been done has been kind of how to make women more, um, like agreeable and less difficult for men, um, which I mean, I like, sorry, I can't even. Yeah. Um, and so but that, what that means is like, there isn't a ton of research on perimenopausal or postmenopausal OCD. Okay. 
I would not be surprised. Cause I just wonder too, like when I, when I'm hearing your timeline, I also see from, you know, all the experts I talked to about when all the hormonal shifts happen, like, you know, even when teenagers first get their menstrual cycle, it's really not until they're in their twenties that it normalizes. And so many are being diagnosed as having these issues and put on birth control when it's their cycle normalizing. And it's not to say they don't have an issue. There probably are lots of legitimate issues, but I think sometimes people react instantly and thinking, oh my God, it's irregular. Go on birth control. Right. Let's make it regular. It's like, you know, it's not supposed to be regular. Right, right. <laughs> so when people come to you, I mean, are you finding that they're waiting a really long time to find the right expert and really struggling? And so what would you ad- advise to those who are struggling for those who have family members who are struggling? Like, how can we rethink this path? And what do you wish that that patients would know or be able to do differently to, to help them get better more quickly? Yeah. I mean, so much of me wants to speak to clinicians and to say, you know, even if you don't want to be an OCD expert, just educate yourself enough that you don't do damage, you know, that you don't report somebody who shouldn't be reported. Um, but yeah, I mean, wait lists for treatment are long. And I'm one of the very few, you know, living in Maine right now, I'm one of the few OCD therapists. And I just have, you know, my wait list is two or three months long. So I'm trying to come up with ways to maybe teach, like kind of do a a group therapy course type of thing for people with OCD, just so more people at least have some access to help. And I'm working on that right now. I think finding community with other people with OCD is so helpful. Uh, Just knowing that you're not alone because one of the worst parts of OCD, especially when you don't know that it's OCD is, you know, people have these fears like, what if I'm a pedophile? What if I want to hurt my family? What if I want to kill myself? What if I want to do, you know, and if you don't realize that that's OCD, you think that you're just a terrible person. You think something is profoundly wrong with you. And there is so much shame, so, so much shame. And just realizing that there are other people who are suffering with those same types of thoughts, there's such relief in that. It doesn't make them go away, but at least you know it's OCD and it isn't like this unique defect or sign that you're a monster. You know, it's it that can be incredibly helpful. So I think finding community is important. As you were talking about, you know, these fears that someone has, like we are in a crazy environment right now, mass shootings, just so much chaos. How can we, anyone as individuals who may have this feeling, right? Um, and we as a, a, a world who know these, indivi- who may happen to run into these individuals, how does one differentiate between someone having that obsessive fear versus they may actually act on it? There's something, there's this concept called ego dystonic and ego syntonic. And ego syntonic is when you have thoughts 
that reflect you, that reflect how you really feel. For example, I'm really hot right now. I'd love to jump in the lake. That's a thought that, you know, synchronizes with how I am actually thinking and feeling and desiring. Ego dystonic is when you have thoughts that are, that you find repellent, that aren't reflective of a desire. And that's what people with OCD have. So people will come in and it's, it's clear very quickly um, okay. that people like people don't like that. They think this, they're not coming in to try to okay. convince me like that. It's reasonable or they are so ashamed and they are so distressed. And I mean, it, it, it becomes pretty, pretty black and white. If, Someone with OCD, it doesn't feel black and white to them because they go down this whole path of like, but what if deep down it means that I want to? Well, just the fact that someone is worrying like that shows me that they they don't actually desire this. They find this repellent and abhorrent. There's actually ERP therapists who with, with people with OCD are like the gentlest people. They're so upset about having a thought you know, thoughts that most people would have and just be like, that was kind of weird and then move on. They are so, so sensitive and so, um, so much wanting to be a good person that just even having thoughts is distressing to them. But so there are, there are ERP therapists, you know, because as OCD therapists, we know that our people are like the gentlest, kindest, best people. So people who do ERP, there's some who, if someone has pedophilia OCD, if they're afraid that they're a pedophile, they'll, the therapist will like bring their kid in and be like, okay, talk, you know, enjoy, enjoy your time together. And the person with OCD is freaking out because they're thinking, oh my God, what if I do something? I could do something terrible. I'm having all these thoughts. And the OCD therapist is like, I trust you a hundred percent. Like, I'm you're sitting with my oh child my goodness. and it's meant to be an exposure, you know? So what about the medication solution? We didn't discuss that because mm -hmm. we have this society of problem equals medication. There are um, SSRIs have been shown to be helpful for people with OCD. If taken in higher dosages than you normally see with, with major depression or anxiety, what the, the medication will not cure OCD but what it does is it kind of quiets the thoughts a little bit. They're still there, okay. but they're not so loud that you can't even do treatment. You know, it, it helps it helps you kind of clear the space so that you can do the work. Um, okay. And so I have found for people it to be really helpful. You You don't have to take medication, of course, but there is this leg up and why not? take it if, if you can. Right. Um, it just makes actually doing the work a little bit easier because, and you're sort of able to function a, a bit in life more easily because you're not right. so bombarded. Granted, it's all still there, right? It's just quieter. When someone heals, so to speak, what does that look like? Like what's the hope? Yeah. So again, I think it depends on the type of therapy that you, that you do for some, for ERP, the goal, you're kind of considered healed. If you're able to tolerate discomfort and uncertainty and still engage in 
a meaningful life, right? So you're, let's say you're somebody who um, you have harm OCD and you're afraid that you're going to harm your family and you get invited for a hike um, with your family. And there's part of you that wants to not go because you're like, I just don't want to deal with the thoughts. So, okay. So then you're avoiding the anxiety, but you're not living a life based on your values. And so the goal with ERP and kind of in um, what's used adjunctively, which is acceptance and commitment therapy, is how can you engage in this activity in a way that even if you're anxious, even if you're scared, you do it anyway because you prioritize your values. Um, So that's sort of, you know, what healing looks like from an ERP model. With ICBT, the goal is to no longer have the doubt that you're someone who could hurt your family. So the goal is for you to realize like you made all this up. What about family members and and friends and and colleagues? Like what do you suggest for them? Family members can start to kind of over-accommodate someone's obsessions. And you'll, I mean, I've heard about families who like, bought a separate house because the child couldn't deal, you know, it it just can get really, um, wow. Parents can be really over accommodating. And so, excuse me, you want to strike this balance of, you know, your loved one is suffering and you want to care for them, but you also don't want to add, you don't kind of want to indulge the obsession. And from the ERP perspective, the reason is because, you, this person needs to learn to sit with discomfort. And if you kind of cater to them or adjust, you're taking that away from them. You're taking away that opportunity. From the ICBT perspective, you don't want to indulge in this because you're kind of adding validity to their doubt. You know, you're saying like, okay, this, I will remove these objects from this place because it bothers right. you and you sort of add legitimacy to their kind of story. Um, so in both situations, family accommodation really should be limited. That being said, ERP and ICBT have different takes on reassurance. So with ERP, like you are not supposed to provide reassurance. Um there's this thing called like the OCD shrug, where if somebody says, well, do you think that this is going to happen? And you kind of, I don't know, maybe, maybe not. With ER, with ICBT, the view of reassurance is it's fine to reassure somebody once. If they keep coming back to you, then it's a problem because then it's become compulsive. But if, if a family member checks in with you and they just kind of need a reality check, that's fine. There's no reason to resist that. But if they have to keep saying, are you sure? How do you know? Or, you know, kind of where your answer isn't enough, then you have to step back and say, like, I told you, okay, you know, I, I've, I've answered this question and it seems like continuing to answer is not helping. So it's slightly different views on reassurance, but accommodation overall now, sometimes we'll get people who, like, there will be a couple, and let's say I'm seeing the the wife, and the husband has just, like, has been following all of her rules, 
you know, you're, you're not supposed to touch this before washing your hands. And if you touch this, you have to wash your hands for five minutes or you can't bring, um, you can't wear the clothes you wore outside inside because then, you know, and if he's really accommodating that, and sometimes you'll get people who they're already in the thick of that. And then you sort of have to work on, okay, how can we cut back on this? It's too hard to say like, stop all now because it's, it's just really, that's a lot. Um, but you do have to start really reducing. Um, so that's, that's always a challenging situation. I think a lot of us have misunderstood what OCD is. Flippantly saying we have OCD when we just want something clean might not be so kind no. to those who are genuinely struggling. It seems like there's a couple of therapeutic approaches um, and we have some ways to go to make sure people are aware. And while there's a shortage of doctors, there are resources and I'll make sure I put them in the show notes. Anything else I'm missing or anything else you want to um, leave the audience with? Yeah, I guess maybe talking about two other types of OCD that are pretty common, if that's okay. Yes, please. So one is relationship OCD. This is a really tough type of OCD to have because I think we all have doubts about our relationships at times. Um, but with relationship OCD, it can it can show up in a couple of different ways. One is, do I really love my partner? How do I know if I'm really in love? Like, is love what I really feel? Or it can be kind of from the partner's side, like, does this person really love me? How do I know that they're not going to cheat on me? Are they attracted to other people? And really just obsessing about it. And so that's, that's a, you know, and people like seek out regular therapists for stuff like that. And a lot of times regular therapists will kind of just like ride the wave with them and sort of fuel the doubts in a way. And then another type of OCD is sexual orientation OCD, which is when people start to, when they have doubts, if they're the sexual orientation that they've always identified as. Again, if someone presents to therapy saying like, I think maybe I'm gay, a therapist is going to try to be like really accepting and embracing and encourage them to, you know, and that's not helpful. <laughs> um, and so, but it's, it's a pretty common type of, of OCD. And the fear is, what if I am not living the life that I have always wanted? So for example, what if I marry this person and one day I wake up and I realize I'm gay and then I realize I'm living the wrong life? Or what if, you know, I, I identify as gay and one day I wake up and I realize I'm straight and then I have to like say goodbye to this community that I felt really a part of. And then there's religious OCD and worrying if you've offended God or worrying if um, you've done something unethical is another type. And, you know, contamination OCD, I think when people think of OCD, they're like, oh, isn't it that? Isn't it hand washing? Or um, isn't it having to like do something a certain set number of times? So I feel like people have heard of that, which is why I'm not talking about it as much, but just wanted to mention those other so I know you have a wait list, but I also want to um, make sure people 
know about you. So I guess, how would you want people to reach out and follow you um, and stay in touch with you? Like, what would be your ask? Yeah. So my website is katherinegoldhouse.com. And again, I am working on this course for people with OCD. I do teach clinicians ICBT. That's kind of what I've been doing for the past several months or past year or so. But I would like now to start kind of offering this this therapy in a group setting just so I can access more people. So if you're interested in that, definitely reach out and let me know. Awesome. So I will make sure that your website is in the show notes and thanks for adding color to the ways that you're offering support. And truly, thank you so much for your time. You were clear. It was worth the wait to to have this connection. Um, I learned so much. And again, just thank you so much for sticking with patients who struggle and for having such an honest conversation about this, because I feel like mental health is complicated. And while we're talking about it, there's still shame associated with it sometimes. And I think just open dialogue is the way we make change. And so thank you for for the conversation. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's an honor. And that wraps up another empowering session here at the FemPower Health Podcast. Now, before you dash off, I've got a quick, exciting invitation for you. Please join our vibrant community by subscribing to our weekly newsletter, because it's really your frontline update on groundbreaking women's health research, the latest health-enhancing products, fun quizzes to boost your health IQ, and unique discoveries that you won't want to miss. All of this delivered straight to your inbox, cutting through the noise of social media algorithms. Love today's insights? Show your support by rating and reviewing our podcast. Your feedback is more than just a pat on our backs here at FemPower Health. It lights the way for others seeking guidance and community in their health journey, amplifying the voices that need to be heard. And for a deeper dive into today's topics, check out the show notes and explore our website at fempower-health.com. Our site is a treasure trove of knowledge neatly categorized by topics of interest and life stages, ensuring you find exactly what you need to empower your health journey. And your voice matters to us deeply. Whether you have a question, a story to share, or feedback on our episodes, reach out directly at info at fempower-health.com, drop us a message on social media, or hit reply on any newsletter. Your insights inspire our conversations. And a quick note, the knowledge we share is here to embolden you in discussions with your healthcare provider. It's not medical advice. Always consult with your doctor for health decisions. And remember, the diverse perspectives of our guests reflect their individual journeys, and it's not an endorsement by FemPower Health. Here's to empowering your health journey one episode at a time, and I'll see you on the next FemPower Health podcast episode.